0: Let's just state the case. Profit shifting is wreaking havoc on a global scale and tax authorities are fully aware of the problem it poses to rich and developing countries. In an effort to tighten up losses from tax avoidance, tax authorities are shifting their attention to, you guessed it, transfer pricing. According to a recent study by the Tax Justice Network, $427 billion is lost each year to tax avoidance. On this episode of The Fiona Show, we're identifying areas of increased scrutiny in the hunt for profit shifting efforts and strategies to avoid extra examination, and we are joined today by Doug Darling and Chief Economist Mimi Song here at Cross Border Solutions. I, of course, am your host, Matthew DeMello, host of The Fiona Show, Cross Border Solutions weekly transfer pricing program, taking deep dives into headlines and issues. And in speaking of staying ahead of the curve, you can earn a CPE credit for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works we're planting three CPE code words throughout this episode. Send all three to the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Again, that's the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. And we'll reply back with your certificate. Now, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Sending Christmas cards, seeing the doctor, getting your teeth cleaned. Some things are better done once a year. In the Dominican Republic, it's releasing their annual tax guidance. This year's version identifies transfer pricing thresholds in an updated tax haven list. Here's the fine print. The transfer pricing documentation threshold has been bumped up from 11.5 million pesos, approximately $199,000, to 12.1 million pesos, or nearly $210,000. Entities that fall below this range are off the hook from preparing a transfer pricing study and revealing the arm's length range in the disclosure form. But if a control transaction is conducted with an entity in a low tax jurisdiction, taxpayers can say goodbye To the threshold, the guidance also lists countries that are free of preferential tax regimes. The Dominican Republic is one of the countries that has, quote, deemed controlled transactions, unquote. What does this mean for the taxpayer? If it has transactions with a company in a preferential tax regime, even if they aren't related, the taxpayer would need to document the transaction. If they're not on the list, you only need to document if it's a transaction with a related party. The war wages on, and for once, we're not talking about the pandemic. Coca-Cola is facing even more liabilities in its battle with the IRS. How much? Try $12 billion. That's billion with a B. The new estimate is based on the IRS's proposed transfer pricing methodology. Coca-Cola used the residual profit split method, but the IRS argued the comparable profits method was best. If Coca-Cola loses its appeal case, it will get slapped with more than just a hefty bill. The beverage giant could see its tax rate increase by 3.5 percentage points, even after its recent $3.3 billion hit for tax years 2007, 2008, and 2009, Coca Cola is on the offensive. It recorded a $438 million tax reserve for 2020, but plans to, quote, assert its claims on appeal and vigorously defend its position, unquote. Stay tuned. Don't judge a company's transfer pricing till you've walked a mile in their shoes. Just ask Ferragamo. The luxury shoe manufacturer faces legal pushback over its use of the resale price method. Ferragamo France, a distribution affiliate of Salvatore Ferragamo SPA, took a 25% gross margin as a distributor. The French tax authorities were not amused. They saw the markup as Papien, while the affiliate did report losses from 1996 to 2009, the french tax authorities revealed some pretty harrowing data compared to 19 third-party distributors ferragamo had a higher rate than those operating expense to sales ratios in the second round of legal proceedings the paris administrative court opposed the tax authorities ruling their argument the italian parent company didn't charge the french affiliate any royalties and ferragamo france made profit from 2010 to 2015. And just when you thought the courts had come to an agreement, France's supreme administrative court reversed the ruling, siding with the tax authority. You know what they say, if the shoe fits. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for transfer, transfer pricing university weekly classes are free so now you really have no reason to miss it sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu i'm actually going to hand things off here to our chief economist mimi song and lead this discussion
1: thanks matthew i appreciate the introduction and doug we're super excited to have you on today and clearly you and i we've been in transfer pricing for many years now and we when we think about this idea or this this notion of profit shifting, right, profit shifting through transfer pricing, what do you think? What does that make you think of when you hear profit shifting? I'm curious. Can we start there?
2: Sure. No, absolutely, because I, I definitely have some thoughts on this. And to be fully transparent, and this might put me somewhat of a radical or extremist in that, yes, it is profit shifting, but it's such a negative connotation, right? That's the way right. you're, you're shifting it away from where it
1: should be. Yes. Right?
2: Mm-hmm. I I kind of distinguish that from putting profits where you have the appropriate dimpy functions, right? if you will. And even if that means in areas of lower tax rates than a higher tax rate, it seems that the terminology of profit shifting just assumes that's wrong.
1: Yeah. No, I wanted. That's, a, that's
2: implied. I, I think that's implied that any type of profit shifting, it's not fair. Yeah, is, is 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 the tone behind that? I really take issue with that concept.
1: I agree with that. I mean, I think that's that's why you know the, the I wanted to start with that definition of the term of what does it mean? You know, what does profit shifting mean to us? Right? The transfer pricing practitioners who've been doing this for many years, because I I believe the connotation right now when people hear profit shifting is automatically that negative connotation because it goes hand in hand with base erosion profit shifting what is that well that's the oecd beps action plan right and and that's sort of where the landscape has evolved to so understanding that right i mean you know understanding that uh, that a lot of tax authorities are thinking profit shifting is this negative connotation How are they actually focusing on cracking down on this negative aspect of profit shifting through transfer pricing or improper profit shifting through transfer pricing?
2: Through implementation of the action items, particularly, I think, action item 13, I I point to, and more specifically, the C-by-C reporting, right, and the transparency that that's supposed to provide. But I don't think, at this point, they're effectively cracking down on anything right? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I think it's
2: it's still too early in the process. I'm not saying it won't eventually, but I think that's the vehicle or, or a vehicle. But I think as transfer pricing auditors are becoming more technical and understanding the transfer pricing and they're asking certain questions in, in their audits that they might not have. Right. That kind of align with that notion of the C by C. Like I said, I can't say as I've notice a lot more cracking down in in terms of an effect.
1: Sure, well, let's get, yes. I mean, I think that's the operative word there. Going back to the idea that the Tax Justice Network, their report had over $1.3 trillion shifted into tax havens, right? There's a significant amount that is being considered to be improperly shifted now. Definitionally, Doug, going back to what you were saying before, there could actually be a reasonable explanation or business rationale of why these profits are, in fact, shifted to these other jurisdictions, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and first of all, anytime somebody throws such a big precise number out there, I kind of got to go. oh, where you know, where did he? They,
1: where did they get that where, from? Where, right? Where did that
2: get come from? And and, and what's the uh, you know, what's the motivation behind it, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So given it given that it may be accurate, right? Give them that. But I
1: assuming I, that it's accurate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: assuming that it is. Have my doubts, but assuming that it is, it's this idea that it's being shifted. That it's the idea that it was in the right place in the first place. Right. And that you're taking it away improperly. That isn't necessarily the case. I mean, you could have these the tax or transfer pricing structure or your paradigm in place and it's been in place for a long time but somebody's now just now seeing maybe as a result of the c by c that somebody that was a lower tax rate jurisdiction is getting residual profits well the i state.
1: think i think that's the key there right yeah, the assumption
2: I, is it shouldn't be there
1: i think that's a key point you're making because operating or having profit in a low tax jurisdiction automatically makes tax authorities a little bit more suspicious that there's improper profit shifting happening, right?
2: Agreed, completely. That's the assumption. And and again, the words used tax haven has such a, again, that negative connotation. It's a haven. When you think haven, you think of, you know, criminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a safe place, pirates, whatever, it's a haven from it protects them improperly, I guess. And as simply as a set of a low tax jurisdiction. Yep. is what it is. You've just labeled it a tax haven and that assumes that there are improper things going on with it. So it's just the way the wording is set up in the first place is you're already having to overcome yep. a, great, a great deal to dispute that.
1: Well, and besides operating in, in these low tax jurisdictions, right, we'll properly label them from our perspective. What else do you think makes tax authorities more suspicious of potential profit shifting activity
2: when they do see transfers Mm -hmm. of value particularly IP and intangibles right when they see a US company and they sell their IP for example to Ireland or Switzerland that immediately assumes that that's a heads up you're right that's an absolute heads up and it's a red flag to them. And that this needs to be investigated. Yep. So even though it may be proper, you may have all the dimpy substance you need in that lower tax jurisdiction. Again, it's it's a red flag. That's what it triggers. That you're now shifting those profits improperly. And we're going to assume you 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 don't have that dimpy until you prove
1: otherwise. Right. There are these very complicated tax planning structures that were deliberately put into place to take advantage of these very esoteric tax structures. I, I think Whirlpool is a really good example here. They, they, they were able to create a structure that apparently they weren't taxed in three different tax jurisdictions. It's phenomenal what could be happening. And I know that that's really- now That's th-
2: impressive.
1: Yeah, that's very impressive. <laughs> very right? impressive. And, and I'm sure
2: there was a business reason behind
1: it that's the question I think I mean the oecd though they understand that a tax authority should not necessarily automatically assume that these multinationals are are seeking to manipulate their profits right it's it's this concept of being guilty before being innocent being proven innocent right got to
2: prove your innocence right yeah not, not not prove you're not guilty you're not show sure, you're not guilty, you got to prove you're innocent. That shifts the burden.
1: Yeah. And I think I feel like we're we're in that state right now from a transfer pricing perspective. Transfer pricing is already guilty, and then we have to prove our innocence. And what are some of the circumstances today, and maybe even some of the temporary situations that we see that are increasing this level of profit shifting suspicion?
2: I wonder how COVID-19 weaves into that. Because I, I think generally uh, companies are seeing reduced profits due to the, the pandemic. Some are seeing increased, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's not not all are. Apparently companies like Facebook and such. Amazon. Amazon are, are <laughs> doing real well. Pizza yeah. pizza delivery places are doing real well. So it's it's not a constant, but I sit back and I try and wonder how that weaves into it. And I'm not I'm not really sure. But it's gotta be somehow impact.
1: Well, I mean, I think that's also part of the motivation behind the accelerated or continuous accelerated Pillar 1, Pillar 2 initiatives yes. by the OACD, right? This whole concept of how, as a global community, are we going to tax this digital economy that we never even anticipated could be a reality, right?
2: Yeah, no, you make the great point that that's, that's obviously sticking out there like a sore thumb, but as a measure, a reaction is the pillar one, the pillar two, you know, in the current bio- environment one. Well, and digital has always been difficult anyways. Yep. In the tax world, right? It's, you know, the sales tax issue is the most common one is where, you know, where is that money earned? Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's always been a tax issue, anything digital or software related. Yeah. It challenges
1: I, 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 that definition of, of what constitutes a, a taxable nexus, right? right?
2: Right, it's all about the nexus, and that in that instance, also that concept weaves has some relevance to the the pillar one and the pillar two. But I think you're right in that that's that's a double down attempt. It's another um, enforcement tool to address the profit shifting. They've gotten specific because all the, you know, Act One Fifteen was kind of generic. right? I mean, kind of wishy washy,
1: mm-hmm.
2: without much substance. And this is given it that substance, I think, or it's trying. To,
1: Right. Real-life sort of application, but... Some-
2: that's right. Real-life application. Now we're going to get serious. We're not effectuating the change we want necessarily about slowing down, stopping profit shifting. So here's, this is the next step we're going to take to control that. Stop it. I think that's that's an absolutely spot-on example.
1: From an m perspective, I mean, you know, we we were just joking about this earlier, right, Doug? The transfer pricing community is... is- such a small world. Everyone knows everybody. What do you think the general sentiment is? You know, what are the general attitudes, at least from a a transfer pricing M&E perspective, in-house tax professional perspective, about profit shifting? Are they concerned about this feeling like they're really, you know, doing something guilty and then they have to prove their innocence? Do you think that that's...
2: I I think that's the, the prevalent attitude, that most definitely under the microscope unfairly.
1: Right. And do you think that the pandemic has heightened this uh, awareness and, and concern, right? Because all of a sudden we're talking about different issues having an impact to your overall transfer pricing framework and policy. Yeah,
2: uh, you know, I think that the pandemic can't but have several effects. Right. And and that is most certainly one where I think it can be seen, you know, that everybody's working remotely. And so it it, it goes back to it's not the same as a digital economy but I think it's just the increased use of the technology of that technology, the teams, whatever has also increased, you know, awareness of that. Is this falling within that pillar one, pillar two? I, I still think a lot of tax professionals in-house are just still focusing on what they have to do day to day. Sure. And, and, I, and I mean, they're not dwelling on it, right? I mean, all the time. Sure. Sure, the issue is raised, especially, you know, a a third-party consultant type, you know, they're there to remind them.
1: That's an interesting point because I'm wondering, this whole attitude about profit shifting and this whole mindset of of being concerned that the tax authority is putting the burden of proof on the taxpayer to really prove their innocence, right? Is that in any way driving a change in the behavior of these internal tax professionals?
2: Uh, In my opinion, no, not really.
1: Okay. So it's still,
2: no, it's, it, you know, it's a heightened awareness. Uh, They think about it for five or 10 minutes and then, Oh, I've got this to do. I get back to, you you know, it's there, it's floating there, but it's always pushed aside by just what has to get done anyway.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's not
2: like, it's not like this huge, huge concern. Yeah. It's a concern, but it's not overwhelming and doesn't, not all-invasive?
1: Well, I think it depends, right, Doug? Because I do think that there are probably many professionals out there where transfer pricing is one aspect of their day-to-day job and they're they're worried about 10 different things and TP tends to get deprioritized, let's just say, uh, <laughs> as a compliance exercise. And in that case, I probably agree with you that maybe it's not changing their current behavior in terms of what they need to do. But for more of the sophisticated transfer pricing professionals like you and myself, I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, if you, correct me if you think this, you have a different opinion here, Doug, but I tend to think that transfer pricing professionals are now much more concerned about this, the shift in attitude about transfer pricing, this idea that transfer pricing is only applied in a manipulative situation. I constantly find myself almost feeling attacked, right? It's like, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not doing something bad. I'm actually doing something that governments have put forth from a regulatory perspective, from a legislative perspective to prove that the company is not manipulating profit.
2: Absolutely. I'm, I'm just using their rules and regulations. And- yes. Uh, You know, they made the laws, not me. I'm just using them maybe more to my benefit in a way they didn't anticipate, but it's not in violation of them.
1: It's not Um, in violation of any rules, right? I'm doing what makes sense for the business, for the organization. I am, I'm looking for, I'm looking for opportunities to make sure that this profit attribution aligns with value creation,
2: right? Yeah, no. And I, and I think you make a point in that when you carve out people like you and myself, I mean, pure transfer pricing professionals that have been in it for quite a while. It is more of a concern, I yeah.
1: think.
2: And I guess I was, you know, when you talk about the general tax department, you know, I, that's why I say, or even you know, your T.P. staff. I, I think it's, you know, it's it's not so much on their radars. It, it is in the C-suite, probably, or you know, your V.P. of tax and stuff. They're quite aware of it, but. They've got a lot of other issues as well, but I certainly think people like you and, and, and me, and, and just eat, breathe, and sleep transfer pricing. I do feel that I'm being targeted. Targeted, and everything I do has to be to prove. I have to prove did it You're, right, as yes. opposed to somebody else having to prove it's wrong. Right. And that's that's just, that's that's the paradigm we're used to, or at least it should be, right?
1: right and i think it especially becomes much more of a challenge if you operate in a multinational that that does have a tax haven and let's let's be real let's be let's be realistic here i think most companies operating on a global basis have at least one or two legal entities in jurisdictions that could be and would be considered tax havens but some of them have very legitimate business reasons for for operating there, and some of them have substance for being in those particular jurisdictions. Now, in your own personal experience, how do you think that businesses with legitimate rationale for operating in those jurisdictions should mitigate their risk? Now, right, the whole how do they prove their innocence?
2: I think the first and foremost way is is, is documentation, 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 and I don't mean just you know TP report, although. That that's part of it, but any any way to document that you have the required substance. Board of directors meetings, you know, you you have to hold those in in, in those jurisdictions. Everything has to be documented somehow that you have the required substance. And when I you know I, I say obviously I say dimpy, but the effort to substantiate every every letter in dimpy has, has to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, it, and it's an increased cost. It's an increased burden, right? But if you're going to operate in that manner in that structure, then that's about your only defense, yeah. right? It, it, what else are you going to do? You're going to cave to it, you know. But but the best defense you have is is documenting that it exists in in every conceivable and imaginable way. I would not really hesitate to operate that type of structure if I felt that those substance requirements were satisfied. Right. Well, I'm of the opinion, okay, I've done all I can. I'm doing the right thing here. Come get me.
1: (laughs) That's all you can do. That's true. So, so here's the thing. I mean, then, then we would agree that this is one of those situations where maybe you want to address it head on, right? Anticipating that a tax authority is going to challenge you in this particular situation. You're gonna absolutely you're just absolutely. gonna go ahead and and just put it out there up front and say, okay, we have operations here. Let me tell you why. Right.
2: Absolutely. It's it's one area where I think being proactive is critical. I think the rest of the tax world, and I know we affect taxes, you know, taxes aren't our biggest concern, but we certainly have an impact on taxes. Transfer pricing does. I think it's more often than not so reactive. And to be as proactive as possible is always a goal. But this is one area where I think you have to be open kimono, transparent.
1: Because they're going to find out anyway. Because so, they're going anyway. yeah, to find out anyway. Yeah, they're going to find out anyway. And if, you don't, if you're not proactive about it, I think there's perhaps they, a... a, they're, a
2: they're, yeah, they're, 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 there's that... Uh, they're a
1: little bit more suspicious.
2: Yes, they will infer that you might be doing something.
1: I have a, uh, this is a true story. So when I was at MUFG Union Bank, my boss there, he used to work for another financial organization and he was physically based in Bermuda and they would wear Bermuda socks to their board meetings. They would wear their (laughs) Bermuda shirts. And he said it was an amazing job. (laughs) See, see, Bermuda, Bermuda, we're here. Right. That's,
2: that's funny. That's, that's almost mocking it, which I kind of like.
1: Well, but but he was physically there, and that was yeah. No, his no, no, no. He, he was physically there. there, yeah,
2: and he and he could prove that I'm sure. But to you know, that's that's almost taking it to to you know, turning it on, turning it back on on them, and, and kind of you know being a little irreverent and mocking them. Look, you know, I'll even wear Bermuda socks. <laughs> um, I, I I actually you know I think that's funny. Yeah. Um, but but you're right. You've got to have the decision makers there, and that, a lot of times that's the board of directors. You know, they at least at a minimum, what I've seen, they have to have their meetings there.
1: Yes. Yes. You know, and, and which board of directors doesn't want to hold their meetings in a in a beautiful. Malta? You know, want <laughs> to go to Malta. Who doesn't want to go that. to Malta. Yes.
2: <laughs> so. So, yeah, I think, it. you know, very, those are those are the minimum requirements. Right. But if you at least meet the minimum requirements, but you, you, you meet them, it wouldn't change my structure. I, I wouldn't alter it just because of the imminent fear of being asked about being questioned, being attacked. Because if you do that's all you can do. If you do it right, you have the substance there, you document it. You can't entirely change the way people do business just because of BEPS.
1: Yes. And I think that's, that's I think that's, that's the assumption that,
2: that it will. Or that's what they want. Right. Uh,
1: Changing behaviors that they feel are behaviors that were manipulating the profit allocation. Whereas by everybody, exactly. And it is BEPS, in fact, changing behaviors to avoid the perception of profit manipulation and, in fact, creating some other types of challenges, right? It is interesting to see. I haven't seen a
2: lot of behavior changing. No, I haven't seen a lot of behavior changing. I I mean, the behavior that changes is maybe maybe the documentation of it or, or supporting it, going to the extremes, if you will, to substantiate it. And and audit proof
1: it. Yes, and 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 create a consistent but not narrative. Not the transactions
2: themselves. Right? Yeah, but not sure. the, you know, Not the transactions themselves.
1: I think this is this is a good point to to discuss a little bit further, right? That a lot of multinationals now operating on a global basis, they the documentation clearly is a key component to be able to controlling the perception from the tax authorities. So there are many multinationals that pre-BEPS, would have taken a very unilateral approach to the documentation and that, hey, if it's above the range in the UK, HMRC is not going to care. I'm not worried about it. But in this environment, we are much more aware of this heightened sense of global transparency, right? And so inconsistencies become much more of an issue.
2: Absolutely. I I think you're right in in the pre-BEPs that, counterparty to your uk that's making above the range uh, say it's us may never know it the uk's making right i mean yeah yeah but the transparency and the c by c i mean you're right given all that they have more visibility
1: there's much more visibility and there's tax inspectors without borders that are doing joint audits
2: Yep. yep yep and that's that that's an absolutely good point that while before this information wasn't known or made known it wasn't as much of a risk clearly those that dynamic has changed. And so, you know, the things like the documentation just become all that more important because as, as I like to say, and I think it's my philosophy and I, I think it's also cross-border philosophy and I you know if I may feel free to say, so is documentation is your first chance a lot of times to tell your story. Right. And so why not make it the story you want to tell? That's accurate. Mm-hmm. That is compliant locally as possible. Because that's always can be a stumbling. That's an immediate invitation if, it, if it's not, you know, locally and hyper local compliant. And then in that documentation telling your story, it, maybe it is a way to weave in, especially like in the master file, right? Your world your value chain and business strategy and, and why you are operating in that jurisdiction.
1: How important is that particular entity with respect to the value chain? Why yep. that entity, right?
2: Right, and you're starting to be proactive right there in your documentation, and especially you know I think that obviously the master file uh, I, is, is, is a good place you get into that and keep it away is. From it. it
1: gives that holistic view of the organization, that
2: whole value chain, and that's why it makes sense for this uh, this entity
0: to be where it is.
1: Agreed. And I think that that's why there's a much more of a focus on the functional analysis, right, to be more robust. I mean, look at Coca-Cola. So I I don't know if you were paying attention to the specifics of the case with Coca-Cola, but they were hit with over $3 billion of adjustments per year. And that's over three years. That's nine billion million worth of an adjustment. And True story again. I my friend called me, and one you know transfer pricing has always been one of those things. I don't know about you, Doug. All my friends are like, "What is that? What do you do?" Right? Yeah, I like to.
2: I, I think people see it as even people within the organization, uh, yeah. company that that aren't in transfer pricing. They, they it's the dark arts.
1: It is the dark arts, right? Because it all goes
2: on behind the scenes. Right? That that's
1: right. Nobody really knows exactly what you're doing.
2: Nobody knows what you're doing. It's very simple once you break it down into those principles.
1: It is. The, the principles are simple. But my friend called me and she said, hey, I read about Coca-Cola. She's in equity research and she covers Coca-Cola as one of her companies. And she actually asked, I saw this issue that Coca-Cola was hit with the transfer pricing adjustment. Tell me about it. And I said, oh all right, I'm ready to do this. Like, <laughs> I was I was able to answer your uh, questions. You, you,
2: really, you really want to get into this? Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm happy to tell you exactly what it is. And because it has implications for the market, right? Market perception oh, of the business. It huge. impacts their profitability. I mean, these are billions of dollars in adjustments.
2: It labels them as a bad corporate citizen. Mm-hmm. And whether true or not, that's, you do not want to be, known as a bad corporate citizen, right? And, and that gets really played up in, in the media a lot. That's just been my observation.
1: Right? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, the interesting aspect about the case with Coca-Cola is the challenge in terms of who was doing what and, and how was the allocation of profit being distributed across each of the contributors to the transaction? Mm-hmm. And so there was a question about, you know, the profitability of certain routine entities right 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 allegedly
2: unusually too much
1: unusually profitable it, unusually profitable
2: it, for for a routine
1: yes yes
2: now routine is a term of art that we use so I, well, I, I yeah and i you know the general public you know may not grasp that fully but i think it, it says what it says It, you know
1: yes they,
2: it's they understand routine enough to at least get the gist of what's being
1: Sure, that it's, it's, it's sort of every... It's out of
2: proportion, it's disproportionate.
1: It, exactly. And I think, I'm curious, Doug, I mean, if you were to advise your clients what would be some best practices for your functional analysis in this in this post-BEPS environment, any particular suggestions you might make there?
2: I guess the first thing that comes to mind is uh, invest in, in frequent, robust, functional interviews. Mm-hmm. You know, I I know that's a simple answer, but you, you've you got to be able to understand the profile, function, risk, and asset. And there's a couple ways to go about that. And I think one is just good old functional interviews and talking, um, asking questions about this and about that and changes and trying to pinpoint any changes. Sure. But, but there are other ways of doing that. And, and, and I, I learned this in, in one place I was at. It was very much uh, not just that. In addition, when you have certain metrics such as headcount right? When you see headcount in certain areas fluctuate in an entity like R&D, right? All of a sudden you see an entity with the headcount and R&D drop. Yep. Mm-hmm. That should be a signal that maybe they're just still doing more routine functions now. They may have been doing true R&D innovation, but this warrants a closer look. Do we need to look at their profitability based on what we're learning? So, I, there's a couple of ways to go about that functional analysis, and I, I think we're always focused on. i always had been on, you know, just talking to people, and that's an art form, really is, because people are like suspicious. When you well, talk about, I was going to say
1: yes, they they always get a little bit defensive talking about their jobs, don't they, Doug?
2: <laughs> yes, you're like you're like if, if you've seen the movie Office, yes. they're like the two bobs coming in. <laughs> I say
1: right? that all the time. I say
2: that all the time. I mean, I and I and I get that. And, yep. and a good interviewer will will you know put that to rest, and there are ways to go about it. But I also find that most people, once you get over that, they like talking about themselves.
1: Yes, in their, in
2: their jobs. So it's a, it is an art form, and not everybody's good at it. And whether you outsource that, I think that is a that's a worthwhile investment. When you choose your outsourcing dollars, I think that is usually a wise area.
1: When I think about the functional analysis process and the need to actually get buy-in from the very stakeholders within the organization on a real-time basis, really. I always tell people, I always I always think about it as this needs to be part of the fabric of the organization. Transfer pricing is not, it should not be treated as a, a second marriage. I don't, well, not, maybe that's not the right, that's not the right second analogy. Second-class
2: citizen. Second class uh, it's, it's, citizen. An yes. an afterthought, an afterthought. Yes,
1: that's uh, right. It shouldn't be considered an afterthought. It should be part of the business activities, the normal course business activities. And if the stakeholders understand that this is really important to mitigating the risk for the overall organization, then they can appreciate the delicate nature of what the transfer pricing story is is telling the tax authorities and, and really... Help to identify key areas on a real time basis so that the functional interviews are not drawn out, lengthy, hour long fact pattern discussions, but more so 15 minute Yeah, Yeah, they're quarters, not, they're not, right? Yeah, it's, yeah no.
2: It's,
1: it's an evolution of the business.
2: The ideal situation is where the transfer pricing team is, is plugged in.
1: Yep, I agree to, with to that. To the different
2: areas of the business. And that's a relationship building. That's that's trust building and it, it takes time. So that functional understanding, and I don't want to say interview, but just functional understanding process. Point being it should be an ongoing thing.
1: It should be an ongoing exercise. It should be, exactly. it should be
2: you know, give and take in a lot of ways. And that takes effort on both sides. And it takes an investment in time and in helping the business, you know, divisions. Commercial understand why it's important.
1: Right? Sure, absolutely. and hopefully, yes.
2: and hopefully you'll get some reciprocity. But you're you're more likely to have a fuller understanding, accurate understanding, of your functional profile profiles if if you do that. And I've I've seen it yet work. I've seen it both ways where I you know places I've been, I've seen where it's just a real challenge, a real struggle. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is is with your VP attacks is also buys into the importance of transfer pricing right? They understand the value of it and the dollars involved. And they're not just, you know, an accountant type looking to do compliance.
1: Right. And here's, in my experience, what I tend to see is that organizations that have been challenged, right? And one of the areas that maybe they've they've been challenged and audited on would be the choice of the transfer pricing method that was applied. So when they've been audited like that and been picked on by the tax authorities, you tend to see that the business then starts to focus on transfer pricing and understands mm-hmm. the, the implications of not having the appropriate policies in place, the appropriate documentation in place, the appropriate level of investment from the various stakeholders internally, right?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. A, a, a smack in the hand usually gets your attention.
1: Yes, that's, uh, that's a good way to put it.
2: You know, it, it may be even worse than a smack in the hand. But but you're absolutely right. I mean, those that are still kind of operating in that real siloed environment where the transfer pricing group is just I, I, I've worked at such a place, is is just is not plugged in, let me say.
1: Mm-hmm. They
2: probably haven't been hit hard with transfer pricing penalties,
1: questions, you know,
2: questions, and, right, issues, challenges confrontations. Mm-hmm. And usually, when brought up, the, the the typical answer I've always heard, "Oh, our audits have been fine, right?" Okay, <laughs> well, you've been lucky maybe, and, and, and maybe knock maybe, on wood, knock on wood, and maybe you have your ship in order. But I don't think you really know whether you do if you're not on this constant understanding of of your function and risk and asset profiles. You're hiding your head in the sand if you're not. And right. it's only it's only a matter of time. Unless just by chance you're you're fine and you just just don't know it.
1: Well, yeah, most tax authorities, I think their their audit practices are to try to rotate through as many companies as possible and, and make it as random as possible while at the same time clearly focusing on companies mm. where they see that there's an opportunity, right? So certain characteristics, shall I say, of, of a business. Oh, Maybe like um,
2: IP rich.
1: IP rich, yes, yes. That, that it may trigger an audit.
2: The life sciences area, the whole life sciences. Pharma. Um, pharma. Yeah. Well, especially yeah.
1: after the pandemic, right? I think. Yeah,
2: no. That's yeah. That's a that's an interesting point. What what will develop there? Um,
1: exactly, and I think right now, if I'm not mistaken, the administration actually in the U.S., for example, thinks that there's nearly ninety billion dollars of losses in the U.S. alone related to, of course, once again, profit shifting. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I,
2: I see that number. Um, and I, I raise my eyes, but hey, I, you know, I can't disprove it.
1: Right. So. But it's, it's to your point, Doug, of, hey, IP-rich companies, companies that have valuable intangible assets, I mean, what are the things you think that they should be mindful of in anticipation or, or knowing that this, the IRS is focusing on companies like them and knowing that the number that the IRS is already thinking about is $90 billion of shifted profit?
2: I think kind of circling back around is, is really thinking long and hard about any transfers of such intangibles. I mean,
1: mm-hmm.
2: not saying don't do it, but it requires much more scrutiny, much more thought, uh, much more investigation.
1: There needs to be a, a much, a valid reason to do that, right? There
2: has to be that, that business purpose. Yeah. And developing that business purpose now becomes all the more critical.
1: You were at a medical manufacturing company before, and, and the reason I bring what? that up is there was a project I had also done for a medical manufacturer. Not the same one, by the mm-hmm. way. But <laughs> oh, I think
2: we would have known that.
1: Yeah, but the project I had dealt with at that time was actually the valuation of IP to, mm-hmm. to be able to move that IP from a newly acquired company into the, okay. cost share, into the existing cost-sharing structure. Okay. Okay. So cost okay. sharing was pretty prominent in this space. Yeah. Yeah. And during That's, this time. I don't think
2: it's uncommon in that whole
1: Right. Space. And, and I'm wondering, I mean, because it's a newly acquired company, to create less complexity from an intercompany dealings perspective, isn't that a valid reason for perhaps migrating IP?
2: No, I, I think, yeah, I think it can be absolutely valid. I think you're going to have to make, you know, Robust as possible. I I think it's a. I think it, it it's absolutely a valid. I mean, any gain of business operational efficiencies. It was potentially a valid business, right? Reason. This is where our customer base really is, or whatever. You know,
1: Right. This is why we acquired this business, right? There were certain efficiencies to be gained with this new product line that intertwines with our existing product line, and it doesn't make sense. How are we going to, like, bifurcate and, between the two? And, I and this
2: is where these, these functions would normally sit. So it,
1: mm-hmm.
2: by default, why would we put them in anywhere else? Right. So that's an area that you, you, you definitely have to be focused on and, and, and invest in the time and the thought to develop. Mm-hmm. develop that business purpose or that business case and again with all these things in place i can check all the boxes and i i, I don't you know i don't have an issue doing it or or being part of it, of it or advising but you have to have all those boxes checked and not not halfway
1: i think one of my favorite questions at least from a transfer pricing perspective is why why did you do that Right or why did that happen? Or how did this actual intercompany dealing occur? Why? Right. Yeah. It's the simple question of why. (laughs) Uh, And and, and, and I'll tell you, there's
2: always more reasons than just, well, because we want the profit over there.
1: Right. And that's never the first reason, is it? That's never, you know,
2: I I mean, I'm sure it crossed the mind.
1: Sure. It's a nice benefit. Natural.
2: Yes. Natural. but, but, But that doesn't mean it's your
1: motivation. Exactly. Uh,
2: and so I do believe that there, you know, like I said, supply chain, you know, where things are manufactured, like, you know, for example, I mean, one thing we experienced at kind of beginning of the pandemic was where I saw this at one place was computer equipment and, and micro motherboards and stuff mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. were made in China. That supply dried up huh. just because they weren't let, they didn't go to work. I mean, they, you know, there was a time there that,
1: Nobody was allowed to leave their houses. So
2: so that whole supply chain of getting your motherboards from there had to be changed. Right. And so, you know, that's a valid business reason and you better lean on it. Right. If it also results in some like maybe some incidental moving of profitability. Yes.
1: It's incidental, but it's much, it's necessary.
2: It's necessary. It's not just you know nice to have.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: If you want your business to survive, you, we you have to do that. That was you know one consequences, and it had other you know domino effect consequences. But that's certainly something you would definitely want to you know lean on and, and develop and lock down if some sort of rearranging of profitability in, in jurisdictions.
1: Right, and that,
2: that wasn't the that wasn't the intent.
1: Right, and I think the pandemic has has clearly, we, we can't stop talking about it, right? Because it's no. had such far reaching implications and we know for example that because of the pandemic, every government has responded differently and mm-hmm. all of these different tax authorities they are not collecting the same tax revenue that they were historically. Right.
2: Because, you know, and, and we've seen it I've seen it personally, you know, in, in, in entities, profitability are down all right. over the board. All, all over the, the
1: board. board and and they've they've been helping taxpayers with various relief programs right yeah. tax subsidies
2: and yeah yep but yeah i mean I, I think that's right that's there should there's going to be some sort of rebound effect about it
1: mm-hmm.
2: i just i i can't visualize what it is yet or i haven't you know even really thought that much but you know for every reaction there's an opposite reaction so somehow that's going to bounce back a different way
1: well, of course, someone has to pay for it.
2: Yeah, well, somebody, somebody has
1: to pay for it. Somebody has to pay for it. The question is, who is that somebody at this moment in time? And you know, I listened to the uh, OECD Inclusive Framework meeting, the 11th meeting, which happened in January. And you know, while the focus is on economic recovery, there all of these countries are are full steam ahead on this notion of. We all need to make sure that everyone is achieving and getting allocating their fair share of of tax, and we need to increase multinationals' tax.
2: Yeah, yeah, they're the judges of, of tax morality. I'm, yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of the word fair. I mean,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, fair share means different things to different people. I believe it. I believe in fair share. Okay. But not how somebody else may define it. Okay. You know, I, I do think people should pay what they owe. This is what they're obligated to pay and, and whatever it is. But that definition of fair share doesn't always isn't always is inconsistent across the board. So, you know, when you say fair share, I, I not you personally, but when someone says fair share, I gotta ask well, what do you mean by that really? What how are you? How are you shading that?
1: Well, I think that's the challenge, right, Doug? Because everybody would define that fair differently. share differently.
2: Yeah. Yes. No. No. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so, you know, I don't think there. You know, what is fair share? I don't think there's a single answer. It's that simple. But I certainly think I understand what like the OECD thinks it is,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and probably doesn't jive with mine. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying.
1: Just saying. That's why you're not at the OECD Doug. Just saying. <laughs> well, you know,
2: I'm not I, a fan favorite of theirs, but they, they, yeah, they haven't invited me to many things. So.
1: Well, I that may be the sentiment for a lot of different uh, professionals in, in the space. I do have to say, I think the work that they're doing is is tremendous, and it is. There is so much communication happening; it's impressive. It is impressive. The speed in which they're say. doing
2: things is impressive.
1: Yes, it, I, you I, know,
2: they're just they're, 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 as quickly as they got the you know the initial Beps
1: that's right were
2: done, people were a couple of years you know fifteen or fourteen people were, were scoffing at you'll never get it you know such a consensus. And so I do believe they can move you know very rapidly, and therefore the reaction time for the multinationals is there, is consequently reduced.
1: Right.
2: So. That requires more proactivity. Maybe anticipate what what is coming down the pipe with them more, or ability to, or try to.
1: Well, I'm excited to see what's going to happen with all these new initiatives. But bringing it full circle, when we think about this, the Tax Justice Network's assessment of how much is happening in terms of profit shifting and the global dollar impact. In your experience, do you think that this makes tax authorities even more aggressive.
2: I think it would. I think it, it has a potential to, to go. Hey, look, see. They said these are the experts. They know it's it should be fifty billion dollars more here than, than we're collecting. Right. So we better figure out a way. We're we're behind. The, we're behind. Um, yeah. We're looking bad. If if these people, the the quote unquote experts, think you know it should be fifty billion and we're only you know pulling in ten billion, I think it naturally will make them more aggressive
1: and i think it goes back to your statement about you know the definition of fair because before information was being shared before we talked about an environment of global tax transparency many of these governments may not have been as concerned and but now they see this whole worldwide net of taxable income yeah. and now their their definition of what constitutes A fair share has changed, and they've been empowered and emboldened to be able to challenge this assertion now. And and let's say let's 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 face it, everyone's after their fair share of the pie now. So
2: yeah, yeah, they
1: want a piece of it.
2: Yeah, no, and that's absolutely right. I mean, and it's not ignorance is bliss. That that's not the right phrase. But before they were just ignorant of it, of the total profitability, maybe in the total chain, the total pie. And now that they have getting some visibility. Or, mm-hmm. you know, what somebody says it should be that is that is having that impact. Oh, we need to get our fair share of the pie.
1: That's right. I agree. Thank you yeah. so much, Doug. I think Oh,
2: thank you, Amy. I I I enjoy talking about transfer pricing with somebody else who enjoys it. <laughs> I,
1: Any I day, to, I, right? Yeah, I
2: tend to grade on other people that don't care about it.
1: Well, there's so many things to talk about when it comes oh. to transfer pricing. But it's so, many, it's,
2: it's so many different disciplines, right? It, it really it. is. And that's to me why why it's somebody who is inquisitive, naturally, it should it should interest them.
1: Yes. And so hopefully this episode will enlighten all of our listeners. Sure
2: well. it will. It can't help but do that.
0: And before we go to our next commercial break, two CPE code words, we're making it crazy and lopsiding them all this episode. The first two CPE code words are tax and justice as in the Tax Justice Network. And on with the show. know what wait who am i kidding sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp We want to thank Doug and Mimi for joining us today. This was an incredibly insightful discussion before we close though. We have time for my favorite part of the show. What we want to know. We put our transfer pricing expert in the hot seat. It's Doug today for a rapid fire round of questions about their lives and the meaning Doug always question one. I'm ready. (laughs) What did you learn about your working style through the pandemic?
2: You know what I learned was I, I can be just probably just as effective working remotely. I really had a concern with that. I really I do like being mm-hmm. with people. I miss people, oh, um, and I think it's important to have the interaction. Um, but it isn't necessarily it doesn't have to be a day to day thing. I think the one thing I, I was I was concerned about how effective not just me but everybody could be. But I think everybody's up their game and has mm-hmm. found a way to muddle through it and be probably just as effective. So that's that's the one thing I learned about about my work style or um, that I could do it better than I thought I could.
0: What makes you feel your best?
2: Uh, Regular exercise, absolutely.
0: Amen. If your transfer pricing career were described using a song title, what would it be? Feel free to sing it.
2: Oh, we won't be doing that, but I'll be happy to-
0: (laughs) Shower voice is encouraged. This is a karaoke safe place.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, want to be The Long and Winding <laughs> that's Road. Great.
0: Bravo. And for,
2: and for me, that's only because I, I discovered transfer pricing a little more late in my career. I, yeah. i it's the cutest a little circuitous route. Um, and the other, you know, the only other one would be Living the Dream. Oh, well dream.
0: chosen. Know. Both well chosen songs.
2: That's one of my favorite phrases people ask, how are you doing, huh?
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. People hate long and winding rope and I like it. Uh, that's just me. Anyway,
2: yeah, I do too. I'm a big Beatles fan.
0: Yeah. Uh, describe your ideal meal.
2: Oh, really? Any type of fresh, fresh seafood. Amen. To me, to me, that's a real treat. But the key there is fresh,
0: especially when you can eat it in Arizona over an amazing view. Anybody remember that? <laughs> I'll cut this later, I yeah. don't care. I just, I just, you took me right back. Yeah, there. no, 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 that, I, I, that was the whole reason uh. I joined Cross Borders Ride. Right? I wanted to be part of it. <laughs> uh, just for reference to our audience, uh, I'm talking about the last time Doug and I had dinner at the Cross Border Client Summit at the Phoenician in Arizona in December, 2019, Which I can't plug enough uh, once we start doing the client summits again, if any of our clients are listening, make time for that if you see it in an email, because it's just loads of fun. And interrupting very briefly for our third and final CPE code word. I know we put it right at the end. Many, many curveballs this episode. That word is network, as in I'm mad as hell and not taking it anymore. But also when you put all of our CPE code words together in this episode, they make the tax justice network get it? As in the organization whose recent study told us $427 billion is lost each year to tax avoidance. I know we're so clever. Doug, thank you so much for being with us today on the Fiona show. Thank you to Mimi. For co-hosting and having this lively conversation. Thank you to everyone tuning in from home while you're there. And since you have nothing better to do in quarantine, why don't you go ahead and subscribe to our suite of podcasts? There's our Transfer Pricing in the News podcast. That's the Fiona Show hot off the press. All of your transfer pricing reg changes and headlines from around the world in under 10 minutes. Then there's Fiona's R&D Tax Credit podcast. Don't leave that money on the table. Apply for your R and D tax credit and find out how. My name's Matthew Demello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast for their benefit, I guess. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum Strom is our executive producer. Until next week, everyone, stay safe, wear a mask, and we will catch you then.